Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. Morning, and welcome to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes, and for the next few minutes, as I always do, please, please stay with me. It'll just be a few minutes of motivation, some inspiration, some education, and we do it without any type of manipulation. So we're asking you to listen up, maybe take a few notes, maybe jot some things down. If you're interested in learning how God's plan works, it is a show about the Bible, that's right, Not no ranting and no raving, anything like that, but it is a show about how you can verify and identify the plan of God for your life, and if you're able to do that, you always have the freedom and the privacy to orient and adjust to the plan. That's up to you. But uh, I would like to spend a few moments with you this morning discussing a critical issue. That issue is a simple word that we all have heard many times, something that we all understand. And it's part of the 10 unique problem-solving devices that make up the flat line of our soul. Remember, each one of us are encouraged to build a main line of resistance inside our soul, an invisible barrier that will stop the outside sources of adversity before they ever become the inside sources of stress. Since adversity is inevitable, we like to say stress is optional uh, because adversity is what the circumstances in life do to you, and sometimes you create it. But stress, well, then that's what we do to ourselves. So as believers in Jesus Christ, it is possible for us to live the supernatural life, a life that does not have fear, a life that does not worry, a life that does not get bitter nor seek revenge. It's the Christian life. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, be kind to one another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgiven you. And that's a critical thing for us. So if we're going to understand <clears throat> those 10 unique problem-solving devices and build that flat line in our soul, I hope you've heard me teach this. If not, we have a book about it. It's called Christian Problem Solving. We'll be glad to send you free, no charge ever, no secondary mail ever. But if you want the book, it lists all 10 unique problem-solving devices. The first three are critical because the first one is rebound. Rebound is how you get back in fellowship with God after you have committed personal sin. And remember, sin comes in three areas, something you say, something you think, or something you do. When you sin, it's like taking a garden hose and crimping it and the water won't come out. You essentially quench the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit. He's not able to do his job. You, you crimp the water hose. And so when you go to God and admit your sin, as per 1 John 1, 9 or Psalm 32, 4 and 5 in the Old Testament, when you name your sin to God, you uncrimp the hose. In other words, you give the Holy Spirit freedom to operate in your life again. You can resume fellowship with God. You cannot have fellowship with God if you've quenched the Holy Spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit and by committing sin and not naming your sin. So naming your sin to God, as per 1 John 1, 9, is what we call the rebound technique. You keeping a short account of sin, even while you're driving, even while you're talking to someone, it's so easy to be critical, it's so easy to malign, it's so easy to get frustrated, it's so easy to get angry driving. So you see these things happen every day. 
And as believers, we do not have to live that way. Rebound is critical. And there's not a minute of any day that should go by that you're not examining yourself, making sure there's no unconfessed sin in your life. And I can hear you now saying, that's impossible. I can't keep up with all of my sins. Well, that's why the verse says, if we name our known sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. And that means even the ones you don't remember. I'm sure there are sins you've committed you don't remember. But if you will name the ones you're aware of, God is faithful and just to cleanse you from all of them. That's rebound. That gives you the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the fuel for the Christian life. That's the power for the Christian life when you combine it with God's living word. And thus, the filling of the Holy Spirit is problem-solving device number two. Problem-solving device number one and the rebound technique. How do I recover from sin? Problem-solving device number two, now that I've recovered from sin, the Holy Spirit is filling and controlling my life, and it solves the problem of my genetically formed old sin nature controlling my life. And problem-solving device number three is using the faith rest drill, using God's Word to solve and handle difficulty in your life. In the Bible, in Mark eleven twenty three, Jesus tells the disciples to have faith in God. A simple statement, have faith in God. The background to that statement is this that he has now into the last week of his life come into Jerusalem. And on the way into Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree that uh, was a beautiful tree, had all kind of leaves, but no figs. And he cursed the fig tree. The fig tree was barren. That fig tree was a type of Israel that was barren, that had no fruit. And he cursed that fig tree. And then he went on into Jerusalem And as he approached Jerusalem, the people welcomed him as the king, and they began to sing Hosanna, the king, to him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can read about it in Mark 11, verses 9 and 10, and other passages in the New Testament as well. So with cursing of the fig tree, Jesus knew what was going on. He knew that unbelieving Israel would reject him as their Messiah. It looks like here they are accepting him. It looks like here they're welcoming him. But they're not. The Pharisees hear all of this celebration, and they go to the, G- to the Lord Jesus Christ and rebuke him. They want him to tell all his disciples to stop all that nonsense about him being the Messiah and tell them to shut up, quit saying that. Of course, Jesus said if they didn't say that, even the rocks would sing it out. So he draws near the city of Jerusalem, and the Bible says he wept over it. He looked at it in Luke 19:41, and wept over Jerusalem. That's the second incident in the Bible where Jesus wept. What he's doing here, from what I understand the Scripture is teaching, is he is about to make a prophetical statement about the rejecters of him, those who rejected the kingdom, Those who rejected his Messiahship, they are about to undergo terrible discipline. And our Lord prophetically sees it. He prophesies the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. 
You can read that prophecy in Luke 19, 43, and 44. Jesus prophesied Jerusalem would be destroyed. And uh, it did happen, just as he said. In 70 AD, under the Emperor Titus, Jerusalem was sacked, and the people were scattered, and the diaspora, the diaspora, they call it, it occurred. They were scattered. And uh, we know that some returned in 1940, and we have a nation, Israel, today. But this is not the nation that Jesus will call back at the millennial reign when he comes to establish his kingdom. It's a different nation. These are Zionists. These are not believers. These, these are unbelievers. And this was the case. This is why, what happened, why he predicted this. Even though they welcomed him, even though they sang these things, they would not accept him as their Messiah. So the next day, he comes back to Jerusalem again, and the fig tree has died. And he has to explain to the disciples what happened, what's going on, and that Israel was going to be disciplined and destroyed but for them to have faith in God. Have faith in God. Don't worry. God still has a plan for your life. Faith in God means to be patient. Faith in God means to have no doubt. I'm sure they thought that he, that, that he included them in this disaster, but he didn't. They would see him crucified. But he told them that he would return. Don't doubt that. Don't, don't ever second guess what I said, men. Have faith in God. Doubt is not faith. And unbelief is not faith. And you must think about that in your life as well. When you have faith in God, you must have faith in God's plan. Understanding God's plan is critical. And having faith that God will not abandon you. He will not turn his back on you. The Bible says these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5 talks about the word you can know it for a fact. And if you don't know that, if you think, well, I've done something and now God has forsaken me and God doesn't want me anymore, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, died for my sin and for your sin. And we cannot be good enough to get into heaven. We cannot be reconciled to God on our own. It was only through the cross of Christ where he made the sacrificial death for us. And that sacrificial death for us satisfied the righteousness of God and the justice of God. And thus, you can know for beyond a shadow of a doubt you're going to heaven. Even though you failed, even though you've done some miserable things, I don't even know where you may be listening to me today. I don't know what you might have done. But if you have ever, at any time in your life, accepted Christ as your Savior, God is faithful. He hasn't turned his back on you. You may have turned your back on God and walked away from God, and guess what? He just loves you from behind as much as he loves you from the front. There are people that tell you you're no longer saved because you did this, or you're no longer saved because you did that. And those people are saying that you're going to go to heaven based on what you do or don't do. I'm saying you're going to go to heaven based on what Christ did for you, not what you do or don't do. It's not a combination of the two. It's either one or the other. So faith doesn't look at life from human viewpoint. 
Faith doesn't look at life from human perspective. Human viewpoint is, is always has pessimism. Human viewpoint always has doubt. Human viewpoint always has fear and uncertainty as its frame of reference. Doubt is not faith. Unbelief is not faith. And when the disciples saw the fig tree cursed and the disciples heard the prophecy of what was coming to Jerusalem, they doubted the whole plan. And he said, our Lord said, have faith in God. Now, he is God. And essentially, he's saying, trust me, fellas. I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to leave you. Oh, they're going to kill me, but don't worry. Within three days, I'll walk out of the grave, and you'll see me, and I'll be alive. Have faith in God. Remember, you must remember this also. You do not belong here. This is not your home. Did you know that? Now, some of you that listen to me listen in California and some of our stations out there. And it's a very beautiful place to live. Some of you live in Wyoming. Some of you live in Colorado. Some of you live in Missouri or, or Mississippi or Alabama or you live in New York or you live various places. Listen, that's not your home. This is not your home. The Bible says in Philippians 3.20, as Paul wrote it this way, if you are a Christian, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, your citizenship is in heaven. Listen as I quote it. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be conformed to his glorious body. This is a wonderful truth. The body that you live in now won't work in heaven. If you're getting up in age, 60 to 70, your body might not be working too good right now, not like it used to work when you were 20. But I have news for you. Don't worry. Have faith in God. This body was designed to wear out. This body was designed to be discarded. This body will go back to dust. This is not the body you will take with you to heaven. Remember, inside of you is a soul, and inside of you is a living human spirit, if, in fact, you have been born again. God the Holy Spirit indwells your human spirit, and you're born again spiritually. You're a new creation in Christ. You are going to get a new body, a resurrection body, a body like his glorious body, the body he's in right now. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I don't know what it's like. But it must be wonderful not to hurt. It must be wonderful not to have to take a, an aspirin or an Advil or a vitamin or anything like that. A body that never ages, a body that never gets old. Go look in the mirror. Look at yourself. You're not what you used to be. Sometimes we get this image that in our mind when we were like 30 or 40 and we think we still look like that but we don't we are getting older you are getting older but have faith in God don't doubt God you're going to get a new body a glorious body this is not your home your citizenship is not here you do not belong here you have a different home you may reside here now, but once you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were brought into God's plan, and you have 
God's program designed for you. Listen to 1 Peter 2.11. Peter wrote these words, Brothers, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. This lets us know that life is a spiritual conflict and you are just passing through the arena of contention. Earth is the arena of contention. You don't belong here. This is not your home. You're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner. You're passing through, as it were, going through the battlefield, and you will be caught in the battle. That's why Paul warned you in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, pick up the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. These are things that we've studied in the past and can study more in the future if you'd like, but it's critical that you understand this. You are in a conflict, but you don't belong here. You're only walking through the battlefield, and you are a representative of God to this nation. Did you know that? You represent God not only to your family, to your church, but to your nation. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Bible says, Now then, Paul writing again, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Every one of us are ambassadors. We represent God to the world. We are pleading for the world through Christ to be reconciled to God. What does that mean? That means that the justice of God must discipline what the righteousness of God rejects. God's justice is the guardian of God's righteousness. And so if I talk about the righteousness of God, i got to remind you that God is absolutely 100%, one million times over, righteous. And you and me, the Bible says there are none that are righteous. No, not even one. All of our righteousnesses are like a filthy rag in God's eyes. Remember that. You cannot do anything to satisfy the justice of God. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God judges. Thus, you are in line to be judged with the devil in the lake of fire. However, that can be changed. When you come to Jesus Christ, the Bible says he who knew no sin was made sin for us so we could be made the righteousness of God through him. The only way that you can get the justice of God off of your back is to have the equivalent righteousness of God. And the only way you can get that is through Jesus Christ because he was perfectly righteous. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Thus, when you come to Christ and you receive him, he gives you his righteousness. He's already taken your sin. He's already borne your sin on the cross in his substitutionary death, and now he gives you his righteousness. And so by means of Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross, 
you have eternal life because you now have equal righteousness with God. And that's not because you don't smoke. It's not because you don't drink. It's not because you don't say dirty words. It's because you believed in Jesus Christ and his righteousness was accredited to you. It is an imputation he imputed to you, a real imputation of his righteousness to you. Thus, now you are an ambassador. You represent God. You are asking others to be reconciled to God as well. This is your mission. This is why God left you here. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't leave you here so you could party for the rest of your life. He left you here on the battlefield in the arena of contention to be his ambassador. Now, when Jesus says, have faith in God, when he told those disciples, have faith in God, don't worry, don't doubt, don't be pessimistic. I know what I said. I know what's going to happen, he said to Jerusalem, but it's not going to happen to you. You are my chosen ones. You're my apostles. Have faith in God. And so they must trust God with this. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you increase your faith? If you don't have much faith, how can you increase your faith? And this is where I want to go to the Word of God and show you this passage in Romans 10, 17. How to increase your faith. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So, faith is essential to live the Christian life. And how do you build faith? Is it trying harder? Is that what it is? Is it like the little train trying to go over the mountain saying to yourself, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Is that faith? No. Faith is absolute confidence in the Word of God. So essentially, as you grow spiritually, as you learn God's Word, then your faith increases. Your faith must be based on God's plan. For example, if you have faith in God and you desire God to remove the Atlantic Ocean so I can walk across to Europe, well, forget it. It's not going to happen. That's not God's plan. So you can come up with some pretty goofy stuff on your own that you want God to do. Most of the time, people always relate faith to their personal needs. They want to be healed. They want to be successful. They want to someone they love to be healed or to be successful. And maybe God wants that. I don't know. But you must have faith in God, and it starts with understanding his plan. If you don't understand his plan, then your faith is based on human viewpoint thinking. And you can be pessimistic. Uh, you can be critical. But you're certainly not going to be trusting God. Faith must comply with the plan of God. One of the questions you must ask yourself, am I an obstacle to God's plan? Or am I an asset to God's plan? If you are an obstacle to God's plan, he'll set you aside. He'll remove you. But if you're an asset to God's plan, then he will utilize you. 
So what's an obstacle to God's plan? Very simple. Any believer out of fellowship with God, with unconfessed sin in his life, under control of his old sin nature, that's an obstacle. And thus we're warned, we're warned in Hebrews 12, those that God loves, he will discipline, he will scourge us with a whip, he will set you aside if he has to. There's a passage in Revelation 2 where the Lord Jesus Christ talks to the church and says, you've, lo- you've left your first love. You're great people, but you've lost your first love. That's your motivation. Your motivation to be the man or the woman that you should be is reciprocal love motivation. We love him because he first loved us. In 1 John 5, 3, the Bible says, if you love me, you will obey me. And my mandates are not hard. They're not grievous. So reciprocal love motivation is you loving God who first loved you. And that motivates you not to let your sin nature control you. Your sin nature has a lust pattern. And if you follow that lust pattern, your sin nature will dominate you and control you until it destroys you. But if you will let the Holy Spirit of God control your life, then you will find a completely different set of circumstances. That's for Galatians 5.22, where your attitude will be love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and on and on and on. But that's the key. An obstacle, a believer out of fellowship, a believer that will not confess his sin, a believer that's not growing spiritually, he's not effectively being an ambassador for God, he's not effectively representing God, he is in effect a traitor. He's in effect a hypocrite. He says one thing, but he does something else. He's an obstacle to God's plan. How can you reconcile the word to God if you can't live faithful? If you say one thing and then you do something else, you talk about being a Christian and then you cheat on someone, or you talk about being a Christian and you follow some other lust pattern. You're an obstacle. God will set you aside if you don't rebound. And if you rebound, you can be an asset. You can effectively represent Jesus Christ to your generation. That's what God is looking for. Those of you, and me included, that can be an asset for the plan of God, that can effectively represent Jesus Christ, and in essence, ask the world to be reconciled to God. I hope you're listening. I hope you're paying attention. It is so critical for you to understand this. Now until next week, this is your host, Rick Hughes, saying thank you for listening to The Floodline. Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.